Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. And now on to today's episode. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome the artistic director of the Vienna Contemporary Art Fair, Christina Steinbrecher Font. Try saying that six times fast. Christina is one of the forefront figures in the contemporary art fair, and she's constantly looking at how to combine art and technology to increase attendance and engagement. In fact, at last year's art fair, she put on a, a hackathon to bring all sides together to create innovative solutions to this challenge. In this episode, I talked to Christina about how the role of artists and galleries have in embracing technology, how to bring art fairs to the online generation, and the difficulties of facilitating change in the art world. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Christina Steinbrecher-Font. So Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you... You might not appreciate this, but you've actually had a huge influence on the whole reason for this podcast. You know, I went to a panel that uh, you put on and really I, I, it was interesting because I thought on one side, like the topic is uh, obviously very interesting to me. The points that were made, though, I feel like the questions weren't really answered in some cases. And you did a really good job pushing people to answer them. And so coming out of that, it, it was what inspired this podcast to kind of say, okay, let's bring together people like you and, and like others that are doing interesting things and just like push the hard questions, talk about what's going on in the space because it is changing so rapidly. Um, and I think there's a lot of different uh, points of view. So, you know, bringing those to the forefront. I think it's very important that a conversation prevails, you know. So I see that everyone is working on their own individual projects and that uh, questions might not be answered or not even asked because they're difficult, uh, they have moral implications, they have market implications. And um, I, that's why I obviously love to hear that you continue doing a podcast coming also out of that, you know, which is amazing, which means something keeps on uh, living and uh, existing. Well, that's very important for me. Good. And, and that was the whole point of part of your tech talks is, to, is for that to happen, that dialogue to happen. Yes, exactly. I think many, I mean, all of the participants were very excited to actually sit in a room and talk. I think um, it's to take on the responsibility and actually speak 
openly and answer openly, that's also a challenge for all of us. But I felt that all the participants um, had like tremendously enjoyed the exchange, the professional exchange. And also after closed doors um, at dinner, it was a key moment. And I think like a podcast or even a continuation of, of a talk series um, would be absolutely valuable at this point. Yeah. So let's come back to that. Tell us about you. You're the director of the contemporary Vienna Contemporary. Uh, what does that mean? What is your responsibility? So I'm um, the artistic director of Vienna Contemporary, an art fair that is called an international art fair in Vienna. And we started six years ago. And this year, end of September, finalized our sixth year very successfully. And so the goal was let's set up an international art fair with a focus on Eastern Europe. Let's take a specific niche market and make it happen. So because we have the supply, so we saw the strategic angle that the art of Eastern Europe is very good and you can position it internationally and create a market for it and create an exchange for it. And this is what we did. And we've been working on it successfully for the last six years. And uh, my task is to spot um, galleries and to make them aware of us, to point out the strengths that we have and to get them um, loyal to us. And this is uh, what me and my team did. And we have a very loyal following and also internationally we needed to make the international art world aware of us, which we did and which takes its time. It's a fair circle. And um, I think this year was a particularly happy episode um, because choosing a niche market uh, might not be so obvious in the international art world, um, but we did it on purpose and we had this vision and it paid out. Yeah. I read in an interview that you did that you said you're you're no longer in the startup phase, which is somewhat refreshing to hear coming from the tech world where even companies like Facebook, which are 12 years old and worth, you know, $400 billion still call themselves startups. So, you know, what, what does that mean when you say like you're no longer in the startup phase for you? So first you lay out, I don't know, you write in a white paper and you try to understand and uh, how the market works and how this market is supposedly working for you and for your product. We did that and then we tried it. So we launched, had a launch period of about, I would say, three years where we tested our assumptions that we made about the market and about the marketplace. And then we tweaked and adjusted and um, then went obviously full force uh, with the adjustments. And um, now we have... Um, fairly mature so it's it's we we are not one of the oldest art fairs internationally but we have a mature product that can uh, sustain itself and um, that can service supply and demand that means that can service our core um, customers the galleries and can service the clients, the collectors and visitors that come to the fair on a very high um, level. That's great. There was an interview that you did and that we talked about when we met earlier 
that you did with the interview you did with Artnet, where you said, you know, five or six years ago, people were willing to just jump on a plane, go with the flow, go anywhere. And that now it's more about creating these unique experiences that people want to go to as part of like almost like a destination. So for you, you know, what does that mean? And what has Vienna Contemporary done to differentiate itself and create those unique experiences? So, yes. So if, uh, if I remember um, six years ago, seven years ago, um, people were jumping on planes and they wanted so if something exotic was put on in a fairly exotic place um people just would follow would think oh that sounds exciting i want to go and now people demand a schedule so they want to understand uh, what value they get for their time so um it, it seemed that six years ago, um, that time was more available in abundance than it is now. So that means uh, if time can be measured and uh, monetized, it needs to be monetized now. This was less of an issue a couple of years ago. So they need to understand what do I get? Yeah. As in a written down, very formulated um way and they will look at it critically and they will see is it worth my time uh, where money is not even the issue of of traveling but it's actually more about time so um as a consequence everyone in our industry has to um man up in manpower in order to service that because it actually entails huge um costs for making that happen so if the tech industry talks largely about how scalable is something without um, increasing the number of people working for it so we see a highly specialized um, service industry that we have to provide in order to accommodate and to ultimately um, retain our customers. So we have to provide a very hand-picked program that makes it worthwhile for people to travel, which is fine, which we accept, and this is we, which we are very good in <clears throat> to compile a very unique experience for clients and customers. This is what we do. But this is just what it means, that you have to invest in that part of your strategy and the part of your product offering. So and what what would you say is a is there an example that you have that comes to mind of something that maybe you or other art bears do now to create that unique experience that wouldn't have been done six or seven years ago? I think the key in our case is because we are not one of the global art fairs. That means we don't take place in um, the global finance centers of the world so it's um, neither we are in london neither we are in new york or in hong kong that means we are slightly off uh, the beaten track destination which is vienna which hasn't been associated um, too much with contemporary so we um so if the others if the other capitals per se have an 
abundance of association. So that means if someone flies in, he will exactly know where to go and what the priority list is. So for us, it was very important to um, put it together so that people can look at it. So the association yeah. of, of Vienna has been very limited uh, maybe to in the US to the sound of music and uh, to some culinary um, references, you know, and the Klimt on the art side. And um, that was mostly it for, for, for the most cases. Of course, it doesn't count for everyone. So, but we really needed to uh, write it down in detail. What do we have on mm -hmm. this cultural lifestyle offering? And the others just don't have to do it. So it's a different sort of competition that you're in, you know? So if, uh, if London says London is on, people know, okay, this is what I'm going to get. And people are, they are, they know their way around. Whereas in Vienna, people didn't know their way around. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a very compelling case that, yeah. we, that they would experience it and come back and retain these customers and just the other artists just don't have to do that. So basically it was starting from scratch and making a case for a new destination that um, that was needed to put on the map. So in in, in, in tech terms, it's not, in tech terms you don't need uh, to deal with um, this competitor factor. It doesn't matter where you sit, basically, if you start in tech um company you can sit wherever um but in actual physical terms you need to work with a competitive advantage of whatever place you are because you really need to make these people come and to really enjoy it and then it's about the journey of the experience and so on and so on and and, and but you talked about like coming out of the startup phase but you know like startups sometimes they talk about where you do you try a little bit harder versus one of the um you know, legacy companies. And as a result, you learn more and adapt faster. You know, sometimes when you're a huge company or a well-established company, you know, you die because you don't, you don't adapt. And so for, for you in a way, it, you could say it is an, it could become an advantage because you're creating these unique experiences that are starting to pay off and that, you know, in one year, two years, three years, it, it will um, set itself apart from, from London and Hong Kong and some of these other more established places. Of course. So people do value. So in a, in a fast pace uh, world, this might be, I don't like to work to, to speak in, in phrases, but we see that we can retain a lot of our clients that are coming back by the service level we yeah. provide. And that means very old school, knowing the names, knowing the uh, the wants and needs, and uh, staying in touch, and um, and it's actually they largely enjoy communicating with a human being instead of an app or if an if a printed out or digitalized version of something. They do enjoy that, and this is the feedback we are getting and um this is a bit like contrary to the tech trend so people enjoy this service level and they're happy to come back for that 
Yeah, I would say it is, you know, with art fairs, this idea of a, of a larger experience is something that more and more, you know, I see my friends getting into and, you know, a lot of people go to Basel. I know people who've gone to Vienna Cont Contemporary, you know, and they go and you see a lot of pictures on Instagram and, and on their Snap story about them there. Um, you know, do you see, what do you see as far as people coming? Do you feel like there's an increase in people coming? And is it that they're just coming to take selfies or, you know, or... Are they coming to engage and to ultimately purchase? And how do you get them to engage more and to purchase more? So we see um, the trend that people do want to come to that social experience. Yeah. Yeah? So depending on how you brand it or how you position it, it's ultimately it's a social experience that is um, around art. And so the decision to come to an art fair is actually also whether you understand it fully or partly. Um, sometimes people don't even know the meaning what an art fair is. So we have to explain, uh, and we do it actually, we explain to everyone that you can buy there and it's a... And that's fine. So we do that on purpose because some people, some people that are not from the industry, they seem just like a museum, they approach approach it more as an like non-commercial it's an exhibition no you can actually buy and this is a very um important like knowledge that you have so you enter something that you can buy so potentially everyone that is coming can buy so and the the nut that we are trying to crack and also by help of of technology as well is how can we make them buy? So we want them obviously to buy. We want the collectors, the experience wants to buy, but we also want the new ones or the irregulars and just the visitors that just come just to our um, fair once a year. We want them to buy. We want to take, we want that they spend money. Yeah. Let's put it this way. So you don't see them as much as like noise or distraction, but rather an opportunity. Absolutely. So uh, you just have... So what's the point of having more and more visitors if uh, they if they do not participate in one way or the other in the market? So that means that that this further can be produced. I don't know books, art books further sold. So obviously we want them to be part of this chain, yeah, mm -hmm. to be part and to take them with. So not that they just pay but they actually that they take something with them that they can read and that they makes them come back so if you if you purchase something that means you're part of something yeah so mm -hmm. you're part of this group or this association you associate yourself with this certain attitude world who you artists bookstore whatever that means the potential that you will come back is higher if you actually take something with you yeah yeah and this is um what we want, but we see, especially the ones that come unprepared that are not from the art market, that they lack um, decision mechanisms. So they don't know how to take a decision, even if they like something. And this is um, this year we started a hackathon. So we did a hackathon uh, with four huge and very um, important institutions in Austria, in Vienna. So the Kunsthistorische Museum, the Opera, the uh, Wiener 
Festwochen and Us, which are the major cultural institutions in Vienna, where we paired them up with startups that and all of the institutions, they formalized a problem or a challenge that they have. And these, these startups were supposed to hack this problem and to come up with potential solutions or ways how to... Um, how to do it and um, for us uh, with the formalized approach was okay how can we um, turn these visitors around and how can we um, monetize basically their visit um, to to the fair how yeah. can we do that how can we help them essentially they are ready to buy it's not so every visitor that comes to the fair understands it's a selling show. Mm -hmm. So they are basically ready to buy. So they understand the purpose of this whole um, undertaking. They're ready to buy. So it's stupid of us not to understand what, how can we help them to yeah. buy, whether it's an art book or whether it's an art piece. Yeah, it doesn't, like it doesn't do much, um, but we need to understand that. And um, so our, I think I think by the way, it's incredible that you guys participated or put on a hackathon. I mean, and, and brought in the tech community. I know, I, I read that your chairman uh, is really involved with the tech community yeah. in Vienna to help look at these things because I think I mean that is that's so key, and that's where you take it beyond just a discussion of art and tech and actually like bring these two parties together to see what you can do. So what came of it? I think the key is why, because we are a private uh, company and we are not officially funded, so we don't have governmental backing. So, and also all the small or middle-sized galleries that are that we're dealing with, or the bigger galleries, they are self-driven, self-motivated entrepreneurs. So we have to think about it. So if the visitor stream increases of people that, uh, and which is great, so we need to turn them around. We need to do something with it and uh, technology um, can help us. So we uh, had two cases. Um, so one was uh, for us, I think, which was quite interesting, a suggestion of an up an upfront basically quiz uh, that you would see images from the fair upfront. You take it and then you get a guided um, a guided visit. So if you come, that you know where to go, and this um, basically sets apart. So the professional he would know exactly where to go. So anyone that is in the art world pretty much knows where to go. Looks at the map, understands I'm gonna go first here, here. And then things by chance and everyone who's not professional basically ends up somewhere by chance. And chance is a great thing, can lead to great things, but most of the time it doesn't in, in an experience. It leads to someone wandering around. Yeah, and... just wandering around, being lost <clears throat> and not being able to formulize an, an idea or um, a thought. And uh, so... So if I so, so sorry, just to recap. So I come in and I I do almost like a style quiz or like a Tinder. Yeah. Like here's the pieces. Yeah. Which ones do you? And like? then you get you've you you're told where to go. This is this is probably where, what you like and where it it is, and this helps you. So that gives you a meaning, other than oh that might be interesting. It's yeah. probably something interesting to look at. It gives you like oh yeah I have an 
trajectory that I can follow. So I can follow, this is, the, it looks you on par with everyone from the art world because the people seem to know where they go and why they like it. So, okay, now I have also good reason. I like these and these works, so I'm going to do the same. So I have a purpose physically. I'm like my- It removes that decision, decision mechanism and the paradox of choice of, oh my gosh, too many things. Where am I going? Exactly. So you're being led uh, less by by chance or um, by chaos that you stumble into something and then you stumble into something else, but you actually uh, feel that you made a rational choice and now you go there and you actually take like a, an informed look at things. Yeah. And this is what you do. And I think this is, can be very can be very helpful in that. So and then if you end up in front of something that you have look through uh, that you did the quiz and you're standing in front of it, but you might not be 100% sure if you like this particular piece or left or right something of it, which is great. It helped you already. And uh, you feel that two steps uh, you've been taken. So you you did a quiz. You So taste has been solved for. Yes. The plan has been the solved. The plan, you know where to walk. It's been pointed out. So you yeah. understand where to find it. And this is already two steps ahead from chaos and not knowing where to go. So I think this is um, this can be quite helpful for for our next year. That because people, it's not they're not resistant to doing that. Mm -hmm. They're actually quite happy if this is provided to them. So that's what I said. So coming to an art fair means actually I made it, like I understand it's something can yeah. be purchased. So people are quite happy if you offer them that sort of assistance. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they will obviously shake hands and everything will be sold. That doesn't mean it. But it's okay that to make them feel more comfortable and more solid in terms Confident in, yeah. in 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 their choice, and I think that's quite helpful. And and one thing I, I don't know what the next step is, and and maybe I'm I'm taking your story away, but you know we see with technology is it it's a great way to also tell the story. I mean, Instagram, for example, is a platform where you can see the artists in their studio and behind the scenes, and so you could even do something where they go up to that piece and it pulls up, you know, if it's a contemporary artist, their Instagram, or it pulls up a video of the making of that piece, and so now. They hear the story of this piece, and that's just that's one step closer to buying. Exactly. So this is also what uh, what we discussed um, with. So this is the next step of decision making. So you took the decision, you took the test, you understand. Okay, this is what I like. Then you install in front of it. What helps you to make a decision? Uh, standing in front of a piece, and exactly this is it. Because then you you want to have a narrative. And a CV, so in a professional art world, we look at CVs yeah. and it doesn't necessarily appeal to anyone to look yeah. at a CV. If you might not have an understanding what the institutions listed stand for in terms of quality or heritage or whatever. So this storyline of technological networks uh, that totally helps it. So I saw it yeah. also with... Uh, uh, with clients or with friends that came by to the fair this year where they were unsure to buy a sculpture and then we pulled out the Instagram feed and it did do and it did do it because it's just the it's it seems also because if the dealer so I see it because I sell the fair I'm I'm a professional high-level salesperson actually yeah as a fair director no yeah and uh, so the dealer of a gallery is 
it's also a salesperson, yeah, because it's selling the brand of the gallery, it's selling the artist. So it's an it's an biased person. So and the potential client that is coming understands that this dealer is a biased person. So if you go on an Instagram feed, so you have the feeling that it's a, a third voice that is telling you I, something, you know. And I think that's quite valuable um, to have. And as the more concise the information is, uh, the better it is for making that buying decision. And th that is a beautiful example of how technology can be used to help the acquisition of art. I mean, what was it or how else can technology be used to tell the story or to be that third party? I think in 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 many ways it's um helping just by images people are image driven they are uh, they love to look at things they love to see uh, even if you're standing in front of a small piece because you can you only have that space for it or you only can afford that but people love to see big works of the same artist and they want to feel that they um, buying into that oeuvre of things. So just the image-driven, I don't know, Google Images uh, has a spectacular effect of people. So if you pull out, if you start like with a, um, even um, mid-age artist and you show what uh, this artist has been doing and you just pull it out of, the, of Google, that's already quite an impact mm -hmm. it has. And I think um, in terms of at attachment. So if you buy something, then you can, it's, I think, easier to retain a client that is actually internet savvy. So that means he will eventually or she will eventually follow these artists on media and on, on the networks and will follow them and mm -hmm. will have established some sort of relationship to that artist. Yeah, not maybe knowing this artist personally, but this will be more inclined to maybe buy something else mm -hmm. or something related to that artist, like a friend artist of that artist and think that's important for us to actually create this new, the following generation of collectors. Mm -hmm. And I think this can be, this is um, network-based, this is uh, social uh, social media-based, and I think this is helping helping a lot. Yeah. And if you get someone to engage with an artist, you know, we I've seen this and you probably know this. Sometimes it takes multiple touch points. Someone's not just going to show up at the art fair, but it's like like you said, to walk away with a book is a great start. And this, I mean, following someone in social is a great start because then they engage with that artist. And then next year they're going to come back and they're going to be more excited and they're, you know, they might buy from from that artist. Yes, absolutely. So I saw this year an example also in Vienna that um I had a collector coming from from Poland. And um, he remembered of an um, like experimental artist of Austria, and he saw saw this person years ago, and he was now looking for a logo for his company, for example. Yeah, so they found they pulled out a painting. Uh, so the artist is engaged in sound and and um, yeah, basically sound and light, and they found an image of this artist. And they so he's also collecting, and then uh, the, it all turned out that the artist had an artwork at the fair, and that they met, 
So, and then he was really, uh, um, what is it, inclined to buy pieces, you know, once. So they solved several touch points, basically. He's been following him for years. He never met him. He met him. He made the decision based on the years he's been following him. And then they also decided to do a logo out of his work for his company. So, uh, but it needed, I see it needed this, um, this evolution of relate of online relations the artist is not aware so the artist just met this guy 10 years or eight years after he was first discovered yeah you know they never they never met he was just randomly like following him looking what he does the sound installation but they never followed it was all online based he probably would have not even reached out to collect something because he only saw it online. And then it all came together in one space that he said, well, I actually have been following you for eight years. Wow. I'm going to buy artworks, like show me your artworks. I've only seen them online. Okay. And then he bought it and then he, they even discussed the logo, but for the artist, it was like a weird um, experience because I mean he just met the guy yeah. and the guy said well um, you know actually it's I know like, a like superstar <laughs> yeah he's like I've been following you I know exactly. all of, and I, is, I, I listen to your Spotify playlist you know. and this, is the, this is an odd and the artist was a little bit disconcerned actually yeah so he was like this is odd this is weird and um, and and he even went so far that he uh, would go up to his studio because he couldn't find like the co the collector he couldn't find uh, a phone number to make up an appointment but he he published his address of his studio online so he the guy so the collector showed up at his doorstep introduced him like told the whole story and the artist is like, wow, 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 that's a bit fast, you know? He's like, yeah, but you're online. It's like they're dating, you know? It's like, whoa, you know way too much about me. So I love this. And to me, this is, you know, people think of technology sometimes as divorcing that human interaction or that connection. But actually, it can enhance it in a way. I mean, maybe in this case, it's a disconcerting one. But, you know, where I've seen collectors who follow someone on Instagram and, you know, they, they buy a piece and they FaceTime with them, you know, or they Skype with them. And so, and then, you know, they get to know them. And then when they visit their city, they go and they have dinner with them. And so it, it does in a way facilitate that interaction, which wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have happened without technology. Also, I mean, you, I mean, just think about the evolution of work. So what about if we don't have to run physically errands anymore if we can all do that if if the running of errands reduces itself to half an hour online work so that means and our work can be done more effective more efficient so that means time will be freed up okay so what we do just we do record podcasts all day and chat <laughs> so, so what do we do so we need in order not i don't know not to get depressive or not just to be in a fitness studio all day. I mean, we need to do something sensible with, with the time and the brain resources we have. And creativity is a, it's a, it's a very like desirable skill or it's a very desirable trait to have. And luckily artists do have that. So artists can be very, or, mm, it depends on the character and so on. But 
it depends if you hit it off with an artist as with everyone else, but you can have very valuable um, conversations and uh, meetings and uh, encounters. So I think, and takeaways from that, yeah. maybe not from a one-on-one conversation, but even following that, it can be very inspirational. So I think technology is, is a big part of it. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick break to give you a heads up that I'll be in Austin for South by Southwest in a couple of weeks. It's going to be my first time and I cannot wait to go, especially because we're going to do a live episode of State of the Art, the South by Southwest podcast stage at the Fairmont Hotel on March 15th at 12.30 p.m. This is going to be our first live podcast, so don't miss it. The panel will include three people doing some of the coolest things at the intersection of art and technology. A couple of them you've already heard on the pod. They'll include the CEO of Absolute Art, a representative from SF MoMA, and the CEO of French Girls. So, if you want to catch State of the Art live, visit sxsw.com, where you can purchase a badge to see not only the show, but all the inspiring conference sessions, music, films, and other awesome stuff they're doing down there. So go now. Back to the episode. You talked about being more service oriented and, you know, and I can relate to going to an art fair and sometimes feeling overwhelmed or, you know, not knowing the gallery owner or representative that's there and feeling, um, you know, out of place. And, and part of what this could do with the connection, or have you looked at where, you know, through this app, I mean, you could have a beacon or something where then the gallery owner knows who's coming, that they've indicated they're interested in this type of work, and then almost know who they are and engage, you know, come up and say, hi, Ethan, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. In a way that could then facilitate a more, a better experience for these casual, you know, or n- new collectors. I think this is an ideal world scenario, but I see people being not confident um, about their willingness. So if if you actually open up that much, that means you openly communicate that you're ready to buy. And I think most of the people that are not in the art world were not collectors that call themselves collectors they have a hard time still this decision making still like a struggle for them so for them to actually like approach it in that sort of way they would feel uh let's say not confident enough to share i mean for every dealer every dealer would be like happy to get more information on the client and on the new client and to understand okay what can i show them but i see on the client side on the, or on the potential client side that they are not willing to share that much or disclose that much information about themselves in order to feel more safe or less unpolite in case they decide they cannot take a decision yeah and this is again a human factor that they feel, oh, this is like weakness for for me not to make that decision as a weakness. So I rather take it back this weakness that I put like eventually have or not have, which is normal, that I rather take it back with me and I don't want to disclose too much. So I still have the the opportunity to I don't know, go back, you know, and hide and 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 not fully disclose who I am. Yeah. I well, think this is this is like part of overcome over time. 
exactly. So, and uh, I think in in bigger situations like an art fair, it can be also overwhelming. So because there's so much offering, so much um, that uh, you first need. Wow, yeah, I need to first to look at things before I make any even Start, potential yeah. commitments of 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 indicating of of flirting with yeah an, a dealer i guess i'm also yeah i mean thinking about whenever maybe that because maybe perhaps we've talked about technology making them eventually more comfortable to do that to arm the dealer uh to provide a more personal experience on their side and you know i think um i mean you know just thinking through this idea of the app i mean you could have something where when i come in i don't just say what I like that's there, I could plug in my Instagram or sign in through Instagram and then it could look at the artists that I follow and help drive that decision. And then it could give that information to the dealer to say, hey, you know, I, I see that you've indicated you like this and that, you know, you follow a few, you know, these artists on Instagram, you know, here's a piece that you might like because blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, for me that, and for others, I think it would feel in a way more personal and get me perhaps to purchase faster i mean we'd love that so the <laughs> art industry would love to have um so on the dealer side that's not an uh, that's not really not an issue i think yeah. we we are very happy for that open conversation yeah. and for i think by now also the dealers are very well equipped and ready to actually um facilitate to buyers mm -hmm. or facilitate buyers um or accommodate buyers that are not experienced or need more assistance in figuring out taste or priorities that's all fine but i see um um i see this reluctance on, on the client yeah. side, I do really see that. And uh, sometimes, so technology praises itself a lot that it cuts out the middleman. Yeah, so it cuts out the middleman. So you don't, um, but essentially the middleman, or in our case, uh, the, the galleries and the dealers, they do an essential job. That means Absolutely. they scout. They scout and... Um, they take on this responsibility for scouting and they take responsibility um, for their artist and for um, for the style of the galleries and for mm -hmm. the brand of their own galleries. They do that and they do it in a very professional and very concise way. So this is something where technology, I think, sees a bit of a conflict, you know, so that yeah. technology is always about cutting out this middleman and making it very approachable and very direct. And, and, um, but in this case, the middleman, you don't know what to do with a middleman, you know? So yeah. it's uh, not every artist wants to even that, that everyone talks to him, you know, or to her, it doesn't, yeah. they don't really appreciate it. And then it's like, oh man, but we, we wanted this direct approach and you're now not responding. Now you're upset about it. Yeah. You know, so I, this is, um, not everyone is a, it's a, it's a big salesperson. Not every artist is that and artists as, as other people, to, as tech, people techies, they 
don't necessarily want to talk to people all the time either and that's normal so so this this position in the art world of the of the so-called middleman um is it's a big question how technology can really incorporate this middleman and uh, give that as um account for this very valuable uh, part of this conversation because um and, and I, I and i think that's where there's a lot of conflict perhaps from the more institutional or traditional art world in looking at technology that oh you're trying to remove us you're trying to remove the middlemen you know i always bring up stitch fix which is a fashion company that uses technology to drive um you know data-driven data decisions around fashion, but they have a very key piece is they keep the middleman, which is the stylist. And all they do is they say, based on your taste, based on you coming in here and swiping and saying at the art fair what you like, or in the fashion case, what you've indicated you like, we're gonna narrow the decision down from 20 million choices to 200 choices using technology. And then we're gonna arm the stylist, or in the art world, it could be the curator, with the decision to pick of the 200 what three or five or whatever should I suggest or recommend to this client? And I think that's a beautiful example that the art world can look to as to how this middleman, this curator, this gallerist can play a very important role, um, but be armed by technology in doing that. But in that case, um, so it's a it it can work, but then basically you limit yourself, then. Um, uh then Say, you became you're becoming like the homos um like in a universal human that um is 100% which is which is fine which like takes 100% of the decisions which is true but this means you are absolute in 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 your taste that that means depending on your own choice mm -hmm. In that framework, something will be suggested to you. And this is how that is done. But what the beauty of the art world actually is, mm -hmm. and this is what is not accounted for, is that the dealer actually would maybe be able to open an eye for you for something left or right of your choice Yeah. now. You know, this means you might have a very infantile choice, but you still think it's an absolute choice because it's your choice, because you're whoever you are, but you're very aware of yourself and very sure of yourself. And that's why you believe that your choice is 100%. So if you apply that logic, that means you basically like uh will will be caught in yourself yeah it's a self-fulfilling prophecy exactly so so you tend so you are just basically happy about your own choices and your own stances like oh man do i look great again in the shirt today you know so this yeah. was my choice and what i mean in the art world so the dealer does have actually the so this is what it's so hard, I think, in technology to account for it, that the dealer has the uh, 
independence or the, the the mind and the brain to actually come in and to be really like, oh, you should really push your boundaries. Yeah. Like push your boundaries, take a look at this. It might it it doesn't fit into your I don't know, I go for all blue shirts, yeah, yeah. normally. It might be yellow, but it's still like look at this, you know? So if yeah. if you are always I, I yeah I, I you, think you know, that's what I that's what I see that's the challenge but that's the challenge I mean not to be cliche so but like Spotify for example does this where they pay twenty percent of songs they play you are like random ish songs mm -hmm. so they play you what you listen to eighty percent of the time then twenty percent of the time they throw in a very random song and then if you like it then it like pulls you in these different directions so I mean there could be course, a solution yeah. for that. Um, and it's a starting point. Like, I think we both... No, no, I understand. So I just want yeah. to, to make sure that this whole, oh, yeah, this is all based on my taste might not be, like, the ultimate good taste to go yeah. for, you know? So... Uh, and, and and oftentimes, like, I, you know, you might say that someone who's just beginning doesn't doesn't even know what their taste is. They, they, they don't even know where to begin, what they like. And, and, and so that could change. It could also change very quickly. Of course, yeah. Um, but let's go down that a little bit deeper. Um, you know, this, I think we're kind of saying this idea of like democratization of the art world. You know, how do you see technology continuing to change that? And how is it a good thing? And how is it a, a bad thing? I think the access to art um, became basically universal. So you can, you can have access, everyone with a device and with internet has access to art, which is amazing per se. So there's no um, gatekeeping and uh, as in you don't have to pay an entrance fee for something in order to pull out whatever artist you want. You just do it via the internet and you get uh, like a full download um, of information, what it is about. And it's it still might be boring, but art still fascinates people, you know, yeah. it does. So if they read, uh, if they look at art, it still triggers something in them. So this is um, this is this is I think the the biggest impact. Yeah. So that um, it's not associated with direct costs. So it's free, accessible. Yeah, but is there? Do you think there are downsides to it, or things that we should? Um, I mean, um, if. So it's uh, cultural institutions, for example, that um, so the free time, the allocation of free time, if we again speak about it and um, how people were did allocate or do allocate free time to um, to activities. Yeah, so cultural institutions had the. Uh, had the authority and the head of the cultural institution had the authority to um, name the programming and it was then on. Now the feedback mechanism is uh, alive. So you get instant feedback. So live feedback on everything you do, um, which means uh, you can get tremendous positive feedback mm -hmm. as well as tremendous negative feedback for whatever you do. And um, this, this can cause an um, 
like an absolute positive effect if you put on a show that creates awareness for whatever is it for any social topic is it any for any artistic topic um so it can move literally millions of people mm -hmm. billions of people yeah by um putting it because there will be always an online part um or, so or social media part of an exhibition but at the same time it can have It depends on the readiness of the people to actually look deeper into more difficult mm -hmm. subjects and things that are not black and white and that cannot be judged necessarily by likes or not likes. Um, then maybe a few less likes on social media or visits will, like at the report at the end of the day, say like, well, The difficult topics are really not high in demand. Let's just go only popular the, topics. Yeah. yeah? And uh, that's a question. So you end up following a, a um, community or a mass um, voting system that, again, might not lead to how you how the world looks like yeah it yeah. depends on on the tone setting you want to achieve so you only end up um, in the i don't know in the pastel tones of of the world instead of the gray and the heavy tones of mm -hmm. the world yeah and uh, i think this is <clears throat> this is a this is the negative impact so, i yeah. guess yeah so because uh, i don't know make doing selfies uh, and I don't know, eating ice cream in front of a pastel show is obviously, it's, a, it's, it's fun and it's so light and it's so colorful. Yeah. And then going, I don't know, to an exhibition about World War II and the impact and that it had on artists and on literate world might be less of an Instagrammable works Work. and yeah. needs more text and people are further removed of historical context um, than they used to be 20 years ago. So, um, yes, it will have probably like a, more likes on Instagram, yeah. like a pastel or a cat-based uh, show than an, a difficult show about one of the world wars. Um, so but, it's like this, but it has to be ultimately, it has to be like a systematically decided Uh, programming yeah. and, uh, and then sponsor decisions and so on and so on yeah? yeah so it's a question can you raise difficult topics still if they're not really favorable by the mass audience but we have to i mean this is then an uh, what is it the social conversation to have of course we have to raise difficult topics even yeah. though they might not be as social media uh, hyped or liked yeah but you understand what i mean absolutely so i mean so it's like on one hand your concern is if you do like my example earlier with the fashion of like the selection pieces i might just find only blue shirts and that's all i ever see so that's all i ever buy where then you're saying the other effect it could have is that on the artists where they then just start only creating blue shirts because that's all people are looking at. And so both sides it's now are having a self-fulfilling prophecy on each other, which leads to a lack of diversity. Lack of diversity and lack of conversation and lack, and lack of, of actual depth. yeah, stimulation. So Yeah. And it's interesting because I would push 
to say that that won't, I, I'm not sure that will happen. Like going back to the fashion example, you know, they've shown that that's not what happened. And I think Spotify would argue that as well is that actually the democratization does spread it across, you know, um, it, it shows people what everyone has very different tastes. And I always have this saying of like, if there's an, you know, an artist that's crazy enough to paint something, there's probably someone out there that's crazy enough to like it. And it's just, it's connecting those two people to finding that. So. I mean, I would hope that. I mean, this is something like the hope that uh, drives the art world, but it doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> so, yeah. so we see that a lot of galleries are actually closing because they cannot sell the works. Yeah. So the galleries cannot sustain themselves because the artists that they show are not necessarily are neither um, on the pop very popular end uh, nor it. So they didn't find the demand for it. So that's that that still has to be seen, yeah. you know. And you can say, well, then they didn't deserve uh, a client. Then they didn't deserve to be on the market, which is a, let's say a very market-driven uh, approach. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, but there's a lot of music pieces. Let's when we come to the music world, I mean, experimental music is not necessarily something that has a lot of followers. No. Yeah, experimental classic music. That's what I mean. Um, it has a very very tiny, um, and to pay for it, pay for composers. Yeah. So if but if I you look into that world. Um, I'm not enough of a music history buff, but you know, I would say that probably with the radio, actually, it drove their the popularity of pop music, or the consumption of pop music was way higher than it is now, respectively. Because now you can go online and find funky bands that you like and really interesting things. But who knows? I don't know. It'd be something interesting to investigate. No, this is you can find it, but I'm, I just know enough of the let's say contemporary classical music yeah so let's say noise on the noise spectrum of, of sure. music uh, very experimental very radical um so that doesn't so composers that could do jingles for advertising or for netflix productions but yeah. they actually are into exper absolute experimental classical music so there's no actual demand for it sure. so it's it's basically you can say well they, then they should stop producing which many of them ultimately do mm -hmm. but it's a, like it's a debatable whether they don't have any right to exist yeah you, you understand what i mean i, yeah? so, I get this is deep yeah no i i understand and they f from my perspective yes they might not be market relevant because they're not they're not consumed by the market so they have to find sponsors for anything yeah, yeah to to survive and they're not visual so they can't put it on instagram yeah so yeah and um, yeah but it's it's but it's still there. So just to say everything has to be market-driven and everything will find uh, their consumers, I'm not there. You're not sold yet. Yeah. Okay. So this has been an amazing conversation. And, and like I said in the beginning of the show, I mean, you are you were very much a huge inspiration in starting this. So I'm fascinated to hear 
where uh, do you see the conversation between art and technology going and, and where do you want it to go? So I wanted to go to create. So one is I see that everyone is so incredibly effective and efficient now that it bores me out to death. Yeah. So everyone is just trying to super optimize themselves. I don't know, to work, um, to be, to optimize like machine like ourselves. Mm. So every distraction is, um, Look down upon Con, yeah, it's considered um, as a distraction, as a weakness. Yeah, and I think we have to, and also, so especially here and in, in, in the valley or in the Bay Area, people have everything that is not needed for life per se in order to survive the day. They seem to have taken out of that daily routine and this is scary yeah so mm. even to when i have and, and this is when it's like where does technology <laughs> take us so this is a scary aspect so if you talk actually to tech people many of them have no association whatsoever with culture or with art I think this is definitely like this is a scary yeah. um conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think but technology can be used in order to create a bigger fascination for it. To fascination for that quality, for connecting a visual experience with a meaning and context that the works are about, to connect these two without putting it into necessarily code or without putting giving it a scalable uh, implication, giving it a, a market-based nominator. And I think technology can do that, but we are not yet there that this is done in a, in, in a full capacity. So if, uh, because there are many other distractions, yeah? so you can, I don't know, follow a narrative on Netflix is easier than look at art yeah. or to understand the history of art. But ultimately, I think technology can create this um, excitement on art. Mm -hmm. We just have to find, still to find the right tool for it. For example, if museums so um, used to have such an impact on, on people that visited them, you know, so in the absence of other technological toys, going to a museum had a huge impact of, on people. I had a fascination. Mm -hmm. They went there in order to see creativity, in order to experience history in a different way. But now these museums don't seem not to have that effect on people anymore. Yeah, mm -hmm. So they're losing it. So we need also help in terms of the institutions, how to remodel them in order to create that excitement. Mm -hmm. We have the content. We have a lot of content. The art world yeah. has a lot of content. We just need to understand how do we remodel it in order to make that appeal. And I think this is technology and conversation and trying to model it. I think that's very important. I like that. Who do you want to be part of that conversation? Or who do you, who, is there people now that you think aren't part of it that should be part of it or that are part of it? That so the question is, what is, I think, um, in many ways you will not 
I mean, it's private entrepreneurs, but I see, of course, it has to be, it has to make sense. A private entrepreneur uh, will need to talk about scale and will need to understand the demand and supply side for, if, but on, on the arts issue, so mm -hmm. I think we need a policy maker, someone who actually gets into it because just look at the number of museums that we have yeah. everywhere so you can look at it as real estate yeah yeah you can look at it as content uh, holder and provider and so what is the next step what is the scenario is this scenario are we going to close all of them sell mm -hmm. the real estate because it's more effective because we fund the museums it's costing too much The visitor numbers are dropping because the visitors are not coming up there. They only consume it online. Well, sounds doesn't sound like it's the right way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we need an assessment of what culture, visual culture, stands for, and culture as an you know incremental part of who we are as maybe not efficient humans yeah mm -hmm. but that this is allowed for and this is accounted for in yeah. our in our life and i think um this has to be a conversation because <clears throat> i mean just look at, at the sheer number of institutions that was that is out there mm -hmm. and everyone is fighting for visitor numbers and so on and it's not that everyone has a positive trend it's more same same or negative so what do we do with it sure yeah yeah so there must be some like there must be the evolution of that and uh, to say everything um will be now internet based is uh is declaring basically art dead in, in many ways yeah yeah and the physical experience and this fascination part of it wow You know, it's like you, you cannot make an uh, um, I mean you cannot I mean you can do you can do the following you can close the med and use the med as a hard drive of the med, you know <laughs> what I mean? To yeah. store to, yeah. to store the the digital information of the med, or is there a way um med maybe is a bad example because it's very, very popular due to many um things, but If if you look at other museums, sure. yeah. So we need what what is relevance and how far is culture actually relevant? And I think it maybe will get another boost um, due to time and uh, how like work time and how work will mm -hmm. develop and how many hours we actually work per day. Uh, how what what are the errands and what do we do for the rest i mean we can i mean everyone can get crazy drunk or yeah. go do sports and bike but it's only it's only that much of your life you know you need to feel it meaningful yeah it could like, lead to people being more creative and exactly more that's what i'm saying like yeah. more engaged more creative um yeah to have more the pendulum would swing swing back exactly um, well, that gives us a lot to think about. So thank you. Thank you for having me.
What um do you want to do a quick rapid fire? Sure. All right. Here we go. Who's your favorite artist? David Hockney. David what? Hockney had a huge influence on me. I mean, I have several, but David Hockney. Um I as a child I had an exchange here um in East Yorkshire. And uh, David Hockney is from East Yorkshire in England. And just the magic of capturing moments for me, this was uh, incredible. Yeah, wow. that's uh, how he captures moments. All right, I like that. All right, to keep it a little fun and change it up, who's your favorite superhero and why? I think my favorite superhero is um, Angela Merkel. Ooh. Uh, yeah, the Chancellor of Germany, I think. Um, she is uh, definitely a superhero. She made a decision. Um, a moral decision to take responsibility. And this was not driven by popularity votes. This yeah. was driven by responsibility. And I think responsibility, um, not driven by likes, not driven by any, any popular mentioning or um, trending on on any um, board. I think this is very important. Yeah, Well. Wow. Uh, and last, you know, aside from your own, are there any other companies, institutions, or artists that you see that you're keeping your eye on as far as the intersection of art and technology? Um, yes, I think in an impression made um, Autodesk here in San Francisco on me, because I see it so little that artists have the option to really work on uh, new technologies experiment with uh, engineer devices, um, 3D printers, AI, really experiment with it without being constantly afraid how much this extra print will cost them <laughs> and they will not be able to fund it. And I think Autodesk, um, of course, they do it as a company and for their own sake and all of that, but still to, to actually make it happen and to have creative people using all of their machinery is, I think, this made a really huge um, impact on me because I haven't seen it like that before. Yeah, to really um, make it accessible for artists and come back. I mean, it's not only for the artists that they have in residency, but actually all artists then can, can come back and reuse it. And this is pretty amazing. That's great. Um, well, for listeners out there, how can they find you or Vienna Contemporary? Yeah, it's the, I'm on the webpage of Vienna Contemporary and my email is there. So I'm happy to email anytime. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan, for having me. So be sure to follow Christina on Instagram at Christina Steinbrecher. That's S-T-E-I-N-B-R-E-C-H-E-R. And you can find Vienna Contemporary at ViennaContemporary.at. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.